0: i All everyone, welcome back to Peds Ortho, your podcast for staying up to date on the pediatric orthopedic literature. Uh, We've got another great episode for you today or tonight, whenever you're listening. I'm Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans. I'm here with Craig Lauer, now of Vanderbilt University. Craig, how's the
1: the move going? It's, It's going. I love where I'm at. Moving is always a pain, though. If you're going to do it, I recommend making sure you have a one-year-old and a three-year-old, but that <laughs> usually tops it off.
0: <laughs> I'm sure anyone out there who's moving could borrow yours to just complete the <laughs> I, My five-year-old t- t- tonight said, why don't we move again? It was really fun moving. And, I, <laughs> and here with, as always, Josh Holt from University of Iowa. How's Pleasure it to be there? with you again. It's great. All is well. And uh, we're really excited for a very special guest who really needs no introduction, Dr. Woody Sankar of CHOP. We're going to talk about some of his research. uh, And uh, it means a lot to me, Woody, that you're here. As as you may or may not remember, but you're probably polite enough to say you remember, I was a clueless, indecisive third-year med student when I rotated at CHOP. And within two days on your team, I decided I wanted to go into pediatric orthopedics. So... Everything after that has been your fault, sort of. (laughs)
2: Ah, well, uh, I'm glad I didn't screw up your career choice too much and you ended up finding uh, what we all know to be the best field in the world. So, uh, <laughs> true story.
0: You. Well, before we jump into the material, uh, a couple quick notes. As we've been mentioning recently, we've got some support from the uh, LSU Orthopedics Department down here. Thanks to Dr. Andy King. So, thank you again for making our lives easier and making this podcast sustainable. And if you haven't checked out Interview with a PD Pod, another Posman podcast, or PED Sports, a new sort of sister compatriot podcast please give those a listen too. everything's on apple podcast google podcast spotify etc and i'll hand things over now to uh
1: dr lauer for our favorite session you, craig's Carter, tidbits. you can call me craig <laughs> craig's tidbits <laughs> this is kind of the uh update on the status of the podcast i think so this has become um, so again, I really love getting uh, all the feedback and been sharing uh, any feedback with the other co-hosts. So if you have any PedsOrthOpodcast podcast at gmail dot com and we have officially launched our uh, website. It is uh, not that fancy, so don't get too excited, but it's PedsOrthOpodcast.podbean.com. dot com. Um that may be changing to be more simple, but you can at least find show notes and uh, links to the articles that we have discussed and some more information there. So hopefully you will uh, find us and um, contribute a little bit and give us some feedback. So I did want to highlight a few things that we heard uh, this last month. So uh, Matthew Beakey has reminded us all not to sweat not having the ideal title yet. This was back when we were still uh, in limbo. He said we're in good company and brought up an amazing historical fact. He said, remember that Plasma itself didn't get its name for a while. Of course, that was because they hadn't filed any IRS papers for years under the previous name and didn't want to get in trouble with the feds. (laughs) I see Woody nodding his head. So (laughs) I had never heard this, but uh, Matthew was the former historian in Posna. So I think it's coming from a legitimate source. Um, Sumit Garg, uh, says he appreciates, uh, the innovation in the format and the improved audio quality, and, uh, also appreciates the uh, new homepage with the show notes. And then we also got some encouragement from the presidential line. So Jeff Sawyer told us he liked the new format, enjoyed hearing your guests' opinions as we go through the other articles and clinical problems. He says he feels it's a little less like hearing a polished talk at a major conference and more like a institutional pre-op or post-op conference feel, which, uh, I think there's multiple ways to take that, but I'm taking that as a compliment. <laughs> I think that's the way that I wanted this to feel. I don't know how you guys envisioned it when we uh, started doing this. Um, and then uh, Mike Vitali chimed in with five words. Absolutely agree. Great job, team! Exclamation point. And so I think that's going to be enough motivation for me to keep plugging away for at least two more years. <laughs> And uh, the last thing is just that January 2021 is now our highest downloaded episode of all time. There's 680 individual listens, Um, the February episode and the uh, pediatric, the safety program kind of highlight episode also have garnered about 500 uh, listens. So those are coming along. They just haven't been out as long. So um, this is really kind of heating up and uh, it sounds like people are listening. So I hope we put on a good show tonight.
2: I hope to beat those numbers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: That was
0: uh, Craig's way of subtly introducing some competition into the um, (laughs) show. There we go. (laughs) Perfect. Well, thank you to everyone who's listening out there. Thanks for the feedback. And with no further ado, Josh, why don't you take it away with uh, the main article of the night.
3: Yeah, perfect. So it really is a pleasure and an honor to have Dr. Sankar join us tonight. I suspect that everyone listening to the show tonight knows of him and has read or followed things that he's done throughout his career. And tonight, we're going to just highlight one of his most recent articles. But before we get into the article, Dr. Sankar, I want to welcome you to the show and also just give you a minute to highlight and share any thoughts you have about the upcoming meeting. As as all of you probably know, Dr. Sankar is the program chair for the 2021 Positive meeting coming up in just about six weeks in Dallas. So, Dr. Sankar, welcome. We're looking forward to seeing you in person in six weeks from now. Anything that you want to share about the program before we dive into your article?
2: Yeah, thanks, Josh. It's really um, an honor to be here. And uh, that's quite a kind introduction. I'm not sure I completely deserve it, but thanks anyway. But we've been really working hard on the annual meeting. Obviously, we were all disappointed as a program committee with the understandable change last year with the height of the pandemic and having to cancel our live meeting, which we all you know, really look forward to for both academic reasons, but also personal and social reasons. As you know, we're a very close society. We have lots of good friends professionally, and it's such a great time to, to catch up with people that we trained with or people that trained us. And, and, and so it's such a fun part of who we are as pediatric orthopedists. So obviously last year was last year, and we didn't know what the spring was going to look like when we were going through the planning st- uh, sessions in August and uh, the fall. You know, we tried to plan for some flexibility, and we felt really strongly that with the changes over the winter, that we could do a live meeting, uh, we felt like uh, you know most physicians were vaccinated. Um, we felt like the environment had changed in terms of safety for travel, we also felt like we could do better uh, since our knowledge was at a better point about mitigation efforts and, and masking and social distancing and so on. So the presidential line, the program committee felt uh, like we could do this and we could do it well and we could do it safely. So we you know, obviously went forward with our academic program like most people are used to. We did as every year, the program committee always makes some changes to try to tweak things and try to make things more interesting. Hopefully, we've come up with a really exciting program. There definitely are a few changes this year. Uh, we are going to have, subspecialty today on Thursday morning, rather than than Friday afternoon, which is is a pretty big change. Really, that's where a ton of content is. If you look at the number of abstracts that are presented within a a few hour interval, it really is really heavily on that day because obviously there's so many concurrent sessions. So we're kind of moving that more primetime in Thursday. We are going to do a diversity, inclusion, and equity program on Saturday morning, which we're calling a a kind of a critical issues symposium, which some guest speakers, and that's going to be run by Colleen Sabatini and Corinna Franklin, which I think is going to be really exciting. Uh, And then, of course, we have a a pre-course every year, which is always another highlight of the meeting on on Wednesday morning with Lindsay Andrus doing a session on uh, surging performance, which is a really neat topic and really kind of covers a lot of different things from operating room efficiency to, you know, run your clinical practice to you know publicizing your your practice so really some neat things to discuss so i think it's going to be a really neat meeting Obviously, the, you know, it's still a very interesting time. Uh, we fully recognize that a lot of people just want to come but can't travel because their institutions won't let them, or they may have personal reservations about safety. So I do want to kind of mention briefly some of the safety things that we're doing, and then also the alternative kind of virtual um, way that you could participate. So uh, everything's going to be really socially distanced. Um, essentially, in the meeting hall, everybody has their own table, and the tables are separated by six feet. So there's going to be a lot of spacing uh, in the audience hall. The food is going to be be served in contactless kind of format to make it as safe as possible. They're obviously going to be hand hygiene stations uh, everywhere. And then we're going to do screening every morning with temperature checks, questionnaires as people come in that they have to fill out through the app. So a lot of us are used to that at our institutions. Uh, and I think we're going to have all that in place. And despite what Texas has done uh, with their state mandates, we are still going to require masks at the meeting uh, inside the hotel. So we're, we're really doing the best we can to make this safe. And hopefully people will feel comfortable, feel comfortable traveling. Now, again, for people that can't make it, we're going to have hopefully a Very robust kind of virtual complement to this. There's going to be some pre-recorded sessions, symposiums uh, online that you can access. Young members forum, which is kind of a neat session as well, run run by Dan Miller. But then we're going to stream the entire meeting live. So if you can't come, but you've had those days marked off in your calendar and blocked off your OR time, I would say don't change things because because you can you know you can log in and see the entire meeting, all the different sessions but we're not gonna be able to record everything for AV reasons. So we're only gonna have a few sessions recorded. So I would really encourage people who wanna see the whole meeting to, to see it live. I know that won't work, out, won't work out for every single time zone, but but that's the best way to do it if you can't be there in person. But hopefully we got something for everyone and hopefully many of you will be able to make it because we'd love to
3: see you Dallas. Perfect, sounds like some innovative stuff, some kind of forced format changes, but also just some progression with the program. So I know the three of us will be there. We um, are. will also have a live podcast episode. So it'll be something different and something new with some live hosts and coming live from the meeting itself. So certainly look forward to you joining in with that podcast episode, as well as providing some of the subspecialty day content on our episode, similar to what we did last year. So that it, if you miss one of the subspecialty conferences, you'll have a chance to catch up on some of those key articles. So it's exciting. And we, we're we looking forward to see you down there. And as you mentioned, you know, the world of pediatric orthopedics is pretty small group and part of this podcast is to get to know some of the kind of leaders in the field and the the key cogs in pediatric orthopedics like yourself so before we dive into your article a couple of personal questions um, just to get to know you a little better if you had to pick your favorite surgery you do a pretty wide spread of pediatric orthopedics but if you had to just pick one surgery to do the rest of your life what would it be
2: uh an open reduction of a hip yeah, it's, it's pure. It's clean. There's no issues about adolescent hip pain, which we, we all know can be a challenge to, to work through. Indications are clear. You know, you're changing somebody's life for the better,
3: and it's a fun operation to do. So. Through which approach? Uh, anterior. Perfect. Second question. If you could pick one entertainment or performance arts venue to go to, whether that's sports, whether that's music, whether that's dance, etc., what would you go see on a Friday night?
2: Uh, well, performance art, you including sports, I'd go to Fenway cause I grew up in Boston. So to me, there's nothing, uh, nothing prettier than a, than a summer night at Fenway park.
3: Perfect. And then last question, your best taken or favorite word of advice to give to others outside of orthopedics, something that you live by or share with others or that someone told you that you've remembered ever since.
2: Oh, man, oh man. I, I always tell people, I don't know if this is quite answering that exactly the way you'd say, but I, I'd say like, I always want to. If you think about like what would be on your tombstone or what would be the thing, I I would want to say that you you made a difference in the lives of children. And that's part of the reason why I went into pediatric orthopedics. But I think that if somebody thinks of you as a role model to their kids, like that's the best compliment you could ever get. So um, not just from the medical side, but just, you know, mentoring, helping young people as they grow up. I mean, to me, that's the absolute biggest compliment you could have is is uh, positively changing the direction of a young person's life, whether it's your own kids or whether it's, uh, you know, other kids outside of medicine or whether it's through what we are blessed to do.
3: Perfect. Perfect. Well, again, we appreciate you being here. And and really the key is to get to know you a little better, but also to talk about some of the research. So one of your most recent articles that was published in this month's journal of pediatric orthopedics is on the study you guys did looking at hip dysplasia um, in the newborn period and the treatment with Pavlik harnesses. Um, We won't get too much into the study, but essentially what you found was that a weaning period versus a cold hard stop once ultrasound is normal showed no significant differences at the one-year follow-up radiographs. So in your mind, as you think about that, what's the most important take-home point from your study?
2: I think it's what you said, which is that, um, you know, I think this is, there's a lot of controversy, smaller controversy, but controversy nonetheless in the field. uh, And despite how frequently used the harness is, I would say there still are not very well established protocols for it. And this is one of those aspects that I think remains kind of Not worked out very well which is you know do you wean or do you not it's a very simple question and you would think we would we would know this but you know we really don't despite how often this is used and so um my take-home point is that in you know and we can talk about the limitations and the shortcomings of the the study for sure but i would say you know with the numbers that we use which were powered i think reasonably well despite seemingly relatively small and they were all matched i think it was i think it was designed reasonably well for a retrospective study you know, we really didn't see a difference. And I was surprised because I'm the wiener uh, institution. Uh, so I, um, I've i always weaned in my practice and have thought about it as getting a little extra time in and kind of overtreating the hip a little bit. And, you know, as it says in the in the paper, our hypothesis was that, was that the S-alertics would be better in the wean cohort just didn't pan out that way. So, you know, I think, again, things were matched. I think they were powered reasonably well. And I think the study design for a retrospective study was good. Uh, we can go to more detail if you want about you know, where I think there are shortcomings, but yeah, the take on point was that it didn't seem to make that much of a difference.
3: Okay, so the key question then, it's a two part, do you wean still, or are you a (laughs) non-weaner? That's what I was gonna say because
1: I was like the limit. The limitations are depends Um, on what you do now. Yeah, yeah. So I still wean.
2: Um, I have not changed that, Uh, um, and we are gonna. We're starting an RCT to try to do this. I think it's a very doable RCT question. We're in the midst of kind of finalizing our IRB stuff for that. Uh, I can I can tell you why. You know, again, the study came out the way the study is, and I I kind of believe in the numbers and the data and, and stuff. But I would say, you know, if I were to criticize my own study. I'd say if you kind of look a little deeply, there's, there's two things. One is that it's a pretty young cohort. It's, all, you know, the average age of the time initiation was about 16 or 17 days. So it's just over a couple of weeks. So they're super young kids. And, and part of that is because the institution that I was matching with, which was NYU and, and Pablo Castaneda's patients, you know, for whatever reason, with New York and the referral and not having as so many children in Manhattan, they, they just didn't have a lot of older kids. But he had a lot of younger kids. And so we, tended up, we ended up matching to that based on what he had. And so it's just a super young cohort. And I wonder in my own mind, whether somebody who starts a public later who, um, you know, maybe doesn't normalize as fast or maybe as well as that super young mobile hip that we all know kind of succeeds very, very quickly. Um, if somebody comes in at three or four months, you know, is that a patient that maybe needs to be treated longer, which is essentially what weaning is, right? Is that you're, you're treating a little bit longer. So I wonder whether that would make a difference and then the other thing is, is kind of was talked about in the manuscript. There's, you know, there was a because this was like we went back and retrospectively matched two institutions because I knew Pablo never wins and and I do, and so we we're like, hey, listen, let's compare this stuff. You know, he has slightly different follow-up intervals than what I do, and so that's why um, you'll see if you got into the numbers that. There's like a 10 or 12 day difference in the average time of being in the harness before either he stopped or I weaned. That obviously brings the cohorts closer together because he treated for more hours. And again, in, and maybe it doesn't make a difference in a two week old, but maybe it does make a difference in a four month old. So that's what I would say where the shortcomings, I, I still think that the cohorts were matched really nicely, but I think they're, they're young and that maybe it makes a difference in older kids, but it's it certainly, um, I would say, you know, to anybody, if you don't wean, like, you know, I think it's fine. Um, I still kind of do it. It's kind of the way my practice is set up. I, you know, if the RCT ends up coming out showing no difference, then i will stop. <laughs> yeah. and I can argue with that, but um, but I still do it at this point.
3: Sure, And that's the, that part of my second follow-up question would be, you know, with the RCT results, it sounds like that, that you would stop the weaning process. If you were a new surgeon, like maybe one of the three of us or someone who doesn't have the history and doesn't have the foundation and doesn't maybe have the bias of treatment that someone who's been doing it a long time like you would you have any argument for weaning versus not at this point based on your study well not based on my study because i think
2: you know my i don't think i mean i can give you some anecdotal you know uh, thoughts on it about you know if the patients are doing fine with it that you know there may be little little harm to going longer i think the biggest thing i would tell you would be that whether you wean or don't wean that you got to follow the patients Right. So, you you know, you can argue about how long you have to follow these patients, but I think you very, at least have to follow them for a few years. I follow them for a long time, but I recognize that there are some practical challenges with that. When you have these huge patient populations coming back all the time, like clogging your clinic. so that there are challenges with that. But I think at the very least for an Orlani positive hip, like you at least got to follow it for two years. Again, I go much longer than that. So I think you got to bring them back for those radiographs at six months, you know, your institution, you guys trained at San Diego's you know, plenty of data showing residual dysplasia, particularly in breech kids and and in kids that were treated in public as well. So it's out there, and it's you depending on what you believe it's 5% to 30%, depending on the study you want to believe. So I think it's out there and you have to, you know, you have to appreciate it and and look for it at the six month radiograph. Again, this study showed that weaning versus not weaning didn't make much of a difference in that time period. And so, you know, to a new surgeon, I would say, you know, I, I think the study supports either one, you should do whatever you feel comfortable in your practice. If you're at a place where, you know, it's hard to bring people back, you have patients coming from rural areas, you know, you can't adjust the harness every three weeks, go ahead and stop, right? Because it may be in your patient practice, it makes much more sense to just stop cold turkey because you can't get these people in all the time. Or if you're doing telemedicine or something like that, maybe that's the way to go. But you know, if you have the ability to bring them back more, I think in general if families are tolerating it. I still believe in my heart it probably you know overtreating is going to help a little bit. I know you guys in San Diego there's a lot of history of um, treating for a long time uh, in a Pavlik harness, uh, and so like most things, the answer is probably somewhere in between. But I think either one is justified. Uh, but I would say the the thing that I think is really important is follow.
3: Great, and with your interest in adolescent hip, when you say you follow them for a long time, do you follow them until adolescence? I do.
2: Yeah. I follow, which is a lot of patients, but yeah, we, we, uh, we do follow them. And, and unfortunately they wait for like a two minute, uh, office visit for me to eyeball and yeah. essentially. but, uh, but yeah, I do follow them. You know, I see patients, uh, uh, till maturity and at least everyone I've been in practice for about 12 or 13 years. So it's, you know, I'm getting to the point where they're starting to mature and obviously lots of people fall off and move and there's a lot of attrition, but I, I do, if they, you know, if they call back and say, what do you want? I say, I want you to keep coming back.
3: Perfect. And not to tear off a very, very thick scar from Dr. Lauer, but do uh, skin folds mean anything to you? Skin fold asymmetry? Yeah. Uh, they do not. Um, to me, yeah, it's just, Perfect. Uh, you know, yeah. let that one go. Yet. <laughs> Perfect. Well, you know, I think this study certainly sheds a little bit of light, like you said, doing RCT and getting a little more data in a little more randomized controlled fashion will be important. But uh, one more step to really try and define some of the old practices that have been passed down from generation to generation and try and get a little more data on it. I think it's important.
2: Yeah. I think it also just brings up, like, like I said earlier, just how amazing it is that something as simple as putting on this Velcro strap apparatus is like. We we you know nobody can even agree on protocols. You know we we did a expert consensus to the International Hip Dysplasia Institute, and like none of us could agree on you know when do you wean and how fast you wean and do you wean and then you know do you put it directly on skin? Do you put it over a onesie? Like I mean, it's just like the stuff that we all believe that this is how we do it, and we we kind of practice this way. And then you talk to somebody who's equally qualified who has great results clinically, and they do things slightly differently or or significantly differently. It's just amazing how much variability there is in in our society. We think about trying to expand these kind of relatively simple non surgical treatments beyond orthopedic surgeons that have to do this. And you think about like how Ponseti uh, casting has really gone beyond doctors, right? To physiotherapists and, and, and you know, these mid-level providers all over the world who can, who can apply these things. Like the pelvic harness is really no different. Like this should be something that, that people can learn how to apply and we have a pretty reasonable protocol. But, you know, even within, you know, North America and, and supposed experts, people people can't settle on a protocol. So it's just one of those, it's one of those amazing things when you think about it.
3: Yeah, good point. Good point. Well, Carter or Craig, any of you have any burning questions regarding this topic? Or we can keep Dr. Sankar on the line for a little more and throw some more questions at him. I was hoping to ask you um, some of these questions that you just hinted at that do not have
0: any right answer, but just to sort of get your opinion on them. So, uh, for example, in general, sort of when do you start a Pavlik harness?
2: Um, for initial treatment, I treat every Ortolani positive hip, regardless of the age. I don't, I don't wait on those. Certainly, you can argue to wait a couple weeks or something. I don't start in the hospital. So if somebody's like in the NICU or if somebody's like you know going home that day, I won't do it. I'll start in my clinic where I can give them the appropriate counseling. But short of that, I basically start as soon as I get make an outpatient diagnosis. Barlow-positive hips, I generally treat as well. If they're super young and super small, I'll wait a few weeks. But I know there's literature out of Lurie Children's about, you know, waiting on Barlow-positive hips. I, I tend to treat those essentially right away. Again, in a one-week-old, I might wait. But if they're four weeks old, I, you know, I'll treat a Barlow-positive hip. And then I treat, um, you know, stable dysplasia, I would say, generally after six weeks. But, you know, if the if it's, a, you know, graph 2B and it's like a 57-degree alpha angle, I might wait and get a repeat ultrasound in about three weeks um, so I guess I'm in the world probably fairly aggressive in treating in, in, in these things. And, you know, there are some papers out who people talk about waiting on some of these uh, mid-level graph hips and, and people waiting on Barlow hips. And and, and I agree that it probably many of these will spontaneously improve. But, I, you know, I just families in general, in my experience, just kind of want to get going and, and don't necessarily always want to keep coming back for ultrasound after ultrasound. So it's generally a rel it can be a very quick course of treatment as you guys are aware so I I, that's kind of my general protocol Does that answer what you were hoping to get
0: yeah definitely and then Pavlik like you mentioned on the skin or onesie underneath
2: yeah I do um uh for Ortolani positive hips I go directly on skin and then I see them back I go 24 7 I don't let them take it off for that I see them back depending on the situation in one or two weeks I do a very gentle physical exam and if I don't feel it clunking around then I let them put it on over a onesie Everybody else, I start on top of a onesie on top of clothing. So, Barlow positive positive, stable dysplasia, I definitely let them take it off for baths, and, and I, I basically go 23 hours a day.
1: When do you stop? So, probably normal ultrasound. Um, but let's say, as Carter was hinting at, you know, the TANAS tables are a lot of people are using the updated ones by Nevias. But um, what, when do you decide to stop? Is it what standard deviation is okay to you, and what do you think is pathologic? Based on x-rays?
2: Um, so I stop mostly on ultrasound because, you know, I, I beat. So most of my patients I see in my practice are between one and three months of age when I start a harness. And so my average length of time in a harness in my practice is about three months. So about six weeks full time, and then I do wean over six weeks. That's that's an average thing, obviously. As you know, some hips are more temperamental, it will take longer, and and some hips are very mild and and will be a little quicker. But that's my average length of time. So if you do the math, that doesn't always put me out at five or six months. It means often I'm stopping a harness at four months or five months, depending on when they started. So I go until a hip is ultrasonographically normal. And which to me is, you know, uh, an alpha angle over 60, good subjective morphology of the corner of the acetabulum. And then, um, you know, 50% coverage. And then, one thing that we're doing, you know, more we could talk about this in uh, a different session, but I, I do a lot of 2D CNA ultrasounds. In fact, I do them routinely and you can get 3D reconstructions, but I basically sweep through the entire acetabulum. So I don't just look at one mid-coronal slice. I look at the entire acetabulum and I kind of like want to make sure that the alpha angle is really good front to back. So it's a little bit more of a volumetric view of how the hip looks. And so I stop based on that. And then I bring people back for radiograph six months. Now, if I start to harness it two or three months, then we'll run into my X-ray. Kind of thing when they're weaning, and so I, I'll tell them like, "Listen, we're not going to stop your harness until I also get the X-ray at six months." But I know, uh, I think this a lot of San Diego folks. I think uh, Salila, I know, kind of goes until an X-ray, I think, before he stops. Probably how you guys have gotten some training from uh, from Barak and so on. But I, I don't always get an X-ray before I stop. Uh, I often stop based on the ultrasound, and then I bring them back at six months, and then I apply the Tonus criteria about whether I would. We need to go back into a brace for residual dysplasia. that's where some of the stuff we published on uh, part-time abduction bracing and compliance monitors and stuff comes in at that point. So you could argue, you know, maybe I should, you know, if that three or four weeks, maybe they're not in the hardest, maybe I should keep going. And, and maybe there's a little downside, but that's what I've done in my practice for better or worse.
1: What has been your criteria to start at that six month?
2: Yeah, I use two standard deviations.
1: So it's mostly about 30 degrees at around six months of age.
0: Got it. And then you mentioned following people till maturity. Is that everyone that gets a Pavlik is basically going to be followed or was that more severe? Yeah.
2: So um, I I will, it's probably a little shy, but I do follow almost everybody. Um, I think that probably that's overkill, uh, if I'm being honest. And I think probably, you know, the Orlani positive hips should be followed. Or I'd say I would make a stronger recommendation that they be followed. I don't don't think anybody really knows, but I, I, you know, I would, if you're going to follow one, obviously I'd follow the more severe clinical hips. But I do follow everybody, honestly, because it's just my whole team knows the protocol. They just know the intervals they want them back. And I don't have to double check and kind of keep track of who was what three years ago on their clinical exam. So we just bring everybody back. It's
1: what? going to be great to look at that cohort. Yeah. I mean, once that- you, and that's going to be, I think that's what everyone needs to know which of these hips, when they're infants, we really need to keep treating and watching is to see what happens with your group or if anyone else is doing the same thing.
2: Honestly, you know, obviously I'm, I'm an academic person when it comes to the hip stuff. So, you know, that is part of the motivation is to kind of see how these hips turn out for my own interest in, in my young adult practice, but also for the research, be able to answer the questions. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I bring people back for sure. And I do some I do some follow-up MRI stuff sometimes at uh, three years, kind of really interested in what that data pans out and how that correlates with how people look at maturity. So, um, yeah.
0: What, what is the oldest, you know, ballpark that you have started – Nighttime abduction bracing for residual dysplasia.
2: Yeah, so I tell my families it's really hard to start a brace. It's really hard after 18 months. Like, it just doesn't happen. Uh, You know, most of my kids that I start bracing at six months for some residual dysplasia or at a year... By 18 months, they're taking the thing off. And I tell the parents, like, when you come in three days in the morning and the, and the brace is on the floor out of the crib, like, you know, you're done. And so we kind of go to the point. Almost always, that's like 18, 20, 22 months, somewhere in that range. So, you know, if I work backwards, like, I, I would really never, I don't really ever start a brace at that point, just because, like, again, I know my kids that were tolerating it for six months are starting to take it off. So what are the chances somebody's going to handle it de novo? And the answer is, like, in my experience, zero. I think... Uh, realistically, um, I have started it in 14, 15 month fifteen-month-olds where, where families are just like, I want to do something. I just don't have a lot of a, a lot of optimism that it's gonna it be, last long enough to make a difference. And you know, the studies that we've done on the on the racing have really been up to a year, and so we haven't we haven't followed it out uh, much longer than that. And part of the problem is I really try to minimize the X-rays, so I'm not bringing them back every three or four months for X-rays. And so I, basically, my protocol is I see them at one. I see them at two. And so usually they stop the brace somewhere in between. You're and I tell sure. them that I go, you're probably going to stop the brace by the time the next time I see you, but just keep going as long as you can. And I just don't get that many x-rays. So it means I don't really have an end point for when that is. And that's why I tend to stop my studies at a year because I have a six month x-ray and have a one year x-ray and then the compliance is a little bit easier. So it's definitely easier in a six month old. I don't have very much problem at all. And then once kids start to walk, families get a little bit less interested and then they really get less interested uh, when their kids figure it out.
0: Great. So we've already sort of covered on some of your other recent papers those, I love those nighttime and nap time abduction bracing papers. The other one I wanted to sort of follow up with was the single incision. Triple anomalous osteotomy uh, technique that you and Dr. Zaltz described with with great outcomes. So I was curious, when in age do you switch from? Well, I guess for the younger patients, do you have a preferred acetabuloplasty, you know Pemberton, Dega, whatever for a DDH patient, and then when do you um, switch over to a triple?
2: Yeah, so I do all of them. Maybe not a San Diego, but I do um, you know a Pemberga version. You know where you you know I, I don't go kind of way down like a Pemberton, but I come down a little bit kind of between the notch, like kind of a Pembergad version. So a bending acetabuloplasty of some various Sankar version of whatever we call it. And I do that, uh, and I do salters as well. Um, I'm going to answer it, I guess, a few different ways, try to be as brief as I can. Uh, I think at the time of an open reduction, if the acetabulum is very capacious, which is kind of a slide dislocation where the femoral head, you know, the ones that are kind of be coming in and out and kind of shearing off the corner, I do more of a bending acetabuloplasty for that because I want to actually reduce the volume. For what uh, Martin Gargan once called a jump dislocation, where it looks like the femoral just completely escaped and you have a nice preserved corner of the acetabulum, they usually have a pretty short sword seal, and I tend to do a, a redirectional osteotomy with salter for those. So I do do both. I would say in practice, it ends up being probably 80-20 Pemberton versus salter. Um, for residual dysplasia, you know, if, if we're honest, there's often a little magna, uh if you did an open reduction. And so in those situations, I'll do more of a salter because I don't want to, again, squeeze it down too much more. But if it is, again, like a residual opened up dysplasia, I'll do more of a Pemberton. So I, I do do both. I switch to triples At the time of an open reduction, it depends on the size of the kid, but I switch at about five. So I'll do a concomitant triple with an open reduction, uh, definitely at six, but kind of five, depending on the size of the kid. Uh, And certainly for, you know, Down syndrome, neuromuscular uh, dislocations or stuff where you just need a bigger correction, definitely six and after I do triples and I've done them in five-year-olds.
3: Perfect. What about the other end of the spectrum? When do you switch over to a PAO from your triple?
2: Yeah so my least favorite thing actually is that in between age between a triple and a PAO in terms of a pelvic osteotomy that the PAOs are tough because the bone will green stick on you. Like you want it to be brittle, to snap, to be able to to complete your cuts for the last little bit. And if you're if you green stick, it's it's I think those are some of the hardest PAOs to do uh when the when the bone is, you know, acts like a juvenile. So i results uh taught me this, so I'll give him the credit for it for sure. Um, but he taught me how to do an extra periosteal PAO, which helps to kind of cut some of that periosteum uh, more when you do it and that helps does help mobilize it. And I give him credit for for kind of uh developing that and and kind of passing along that wisdom to me. Um, so that does help things a little bit. Um, and obviously on the flip side, the problem with the triple is the union rate, especially if you get a bigger kid who's heavier and, uh, and you know, and you're basically creating a pelvic discontinuity and then you're going to want that to heal. So, you know, I, I don't love that like 11, 12 year old boy. I think that's like kind of a tough, a tough age, but I guess, um, I wouldn't say it's a hard age. It really depends on maturity. If the tri is closing, I don't worry about the tri I'll put it that way. Like, I don't really worry about a growth arrest. You know, there's never been a, a documented growth arrest after age uh, eight or so with, with trauma to the tri-radiate. And so, you know, I, I wouldn't worry too much. About it. I don't know that I would do it in an eight-year-old, although the Swiss have done it, but certainly 10 or 11, I have no problem doing a PAO. But I just look at the, the execution, the feasibility of the operation. Is this a really big, heavy kid that I'm really worried about union, you know, or is this a really skeletally immature patient that it's not the growth arrest, but it's just that I'm worried about the green sticking, in which case I would do a... A triple, so it's kind of case by case, but I, you know, I, I do, I don't love the in between. And sometimes I'll tell people to wait if they're not very symptomatic. I'll say, let's just wait a year and do it in a year because you're just getting your triage going to close up a little bit, the bone will be a little bit easier to mobilize.
3: Man, that's this is this is golden stuff. I, I've had each of these situations, and you just wrapped up about 12 hours of reading where I mm-hmm. didn't find any of those answers. So that's really good. Yeah, I agree. I was just
0: thinking that's an absurd amount of wisdom, and uh a couple minutes. Um, all right. So if it's okay with everyone, we're going to move on to the quote unquote lightning round and do a brief overview of some other recent articles, mostly about hip, but with some other variety too. So first up is a paper uh, in JPO this month out of TSRH and it is called late hip dysplasia after normal ultrasound in breech babies. They basically followed a large group of breech babies who all had negative screening ultrasounds. And at final follow-up, which was about 20 months of age, only 2% of them had dysplastic hips. None of, none of them were treated initially, and so only 2% with breech presentation later developed dysplasia. So much less than previous studies, which had estimated up to 30% of these breech babies will gradually develop dysplasia. Um, the authors recommend follow-up of these breech babies at about a year, which I think is what a lot of, a lot of us are doing already. Dr. Sankar, how do you manage these? Breach presentations that present normally at first?
2: Yeah, so Megan Emery has a paper when she was at San Diego, and then we wrote a paper um, not too long after showing, uh, and we this was at the six-month time point, admittedly, not at a at, at, at later time point. I can't remember our exact number. I think it was like 17 or 18 percent, but it was, you know, somewhere between 15 and 20 percent uh, was the incidence of radiographic dysplasia as defined by Two standard deviations on the tonus at six months. So, same kind of thing that I typically use in my clinical practice around 30 degrees. And I think they also, the San Diego paper also used decreased abduction. It was a little bit of kind of a quirky uh, kind of throw in there for the definition of dysplasia. And so they had a slightly higher rate uh, as well. But so there, were, there, were, you know, one we did and one that you guys did at your institution, and that kind of validated my practice of bringing people back at six months, uh, which is what I do. I have, uh, I think, briefly read that paper that you uh, just talked about. I do not remember exactly what their criteria was for defining dysplasia, off the top of my head. So um, as far as commenting, which may ask
0: me like, why do I think their rate was much lower? I, I, I think it was that, almost. I believe it was also two standard deviations.
2: That Okay. Uh, At a later time point, though, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Basically, at any time, whenever they followed up.
2: Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I think there's obviously a few papers out there. So I think certainly more and more, if you talk to pediatricians, I think they've started to get the message that maybe just an ultrasound alone is not enough. I've seen that for sure in our area where, you know, I like, I didn't think pediatricians would ever read anything that's in the orthopedic literature, but then I'm getting a lot of people sending them in you know, saying like, or getting me emails saying, oh, I got a six month x-ray, is this okay? Or something like that. So it seems to the message seems to be getting out. But, you know, again, I, I you know, I believe the data we wrote and that Sandy wrote a good paper too. So I, I don't know exactly why, you know, it's different, um, you know, at Texas versus ours, but, you know, I do believe it exists and I, I treat a lot of patients, you know, I, you know, there's. 10, I do, I think 10, 15, 20% of patients that I put into a brace, you know, and uh, and I do think it it helps. It's very low impact. I always think when you're you know making these decisions to get imaging studies, you have to have like something you're gonna do about it, right? It has to be something that has to be beneficial enough that's more than surgery. If it's just surgery, like you could just wait for them to grow up and then do the do the operation. And when you you know a little later, if you see something, but if you're actually gonna intervene with a non-surgical modality, um, then there is a benefit to bringing it back. And I think, you know, with our other part-time studies, I mean, I think part-time racing studies, I, I think there is a reasonable low intervention treatment option. So that's why I bring people back.
1: Love it. You know, I, I kind of feel like I, I have trouble understanding how that mechanistically would happen if this child has normal motion, normal hips on ultrasound, but a, but a year later, we now say they're dysplastic. In my mind, it's probably just because we're looking and every child potentially is like that. And I think it really depends on how you're defining the dysplasia as well. So I don't know. I, I haven't, I, I think that's
2: a, I think it's a really fair comment. Um, I think, you know, Craig, I, I don't know how the answer to what you said, uh, for sure, but I think one of the reasons that we see some of this stuff later on X-ray that we don't see on ultrasound is because I think it's the shortcoming of the ultrasounds. I think we, we, we really, you know, ultrasound, Really can be so much better, and that's why we're kind of working on some of this uh, 3D and 2D scanning stuff. Like you know, you're looking at a single slice through one section of the acetabulum, making a measurement and putting it up as gospel, and um, it's just not, not accurate. There's so much data out there showing that just it, uh, probe tilt changes your measurement by a little bit. So there's so much operator variability in ultrasound performance. And then the x-ray is simple, right? It's pretty, it's pretty reproducible. It sums the entire content of the acetabulum together as opposed to looking at a single slice. So I think that's a lot of what we see is that we may be calling hips normal that are not entirely normal, but you're also right. It could be that there's a lot of this in the normal population that we we just don't bring the normal population back for X-rays all the time. And, and, and maybe it's more other than you think, but yeah. again, I mean, there's, there's a fair number of, you know, young women walking out there with, with dysplasia. Some of them are symptomatic, some of them aren't. You wonder how much of this can be traced back really to, to this stuff in infancy. Cause certainly some people have postulated that's a, a really a different disease. So maybe it is. Well,
1: I loved what you said when you were initially talking about the ultrasound and how you're kind of getting this summary view with multiple coronal cuts. Cause I, I hadn't heard anyone say that before, but I often, you know, when doing them myself, and I'm like, it looks totally different here than it does here, and you would have a different conclusion, and if you're looking at just what a radiologist sends you or a tech sends you, it's it's so subjective, and so, yeah, I was nodding very hard during that, that discussion.
0: Perfect point for a transition. Next up, an article out of Germany in JCO. It's called Pediatric Hip Ultrasound, Uncertainties in Examination and Choice of Treatment. Good segue. Um, So in this population in Germany, they do routine screening with ultrasound of all babies at age four to five weeks. And basically, if anything's uncertain on the ultrasound, they get sent for an orthopedic evaluation. So they were trying to figure out what percentage of those hips needed to be sent and which ones were sort of, quote unquote, wasted referrals. What do you guys think? Everyone want to take a stab at it? Population does this all the time, every single baby. What percentage of the orthopedic referrals are unnecessary? Sixty-eight percent. I was going to
3: say forty-six percent. Uh, I'd go seventy.
0: If we play prices right rules, then Josh wins as usual. But uh, it's sixty-four. Woo! So almost two out of three. Once they were actually evaluated, and you know, again, here we you know, failing of the ultrasound. Here we are. It's not perfect. Dr. Sankar, what do you what do you think about universal screening in general? Is that are we doing things right? Should we be considering that in this country?
2: Yeah, so you know, as you guys know, it's it's the false positive thing that kills it, right? So it, you know, it's not cost effective according to AAP because. Uh, you know, we have too many false positives, we generate these referrals, we generate these appointments that a lot of these uh, hips will spontaneously normalize and you have you know, immature hips. And that's the problem, right, is that we, despite how great ultrasound is in the sense that it's portable and it's, uh, you know, non-radiation, still all that kind of stuff. You know, when you get into it, and you're talking about classifying a hip as normal or abnormal and treat versus not treat it's not perfect and again you generate these referrals that maybe you don't need to be and so this is where you know there's lots of centers um, you know is is working on this in Vancouver and there's you know, some work in, in Edmonton as well about essentially these kind of automated AI 3D ultrasounds where you um, essentially put the thing in one spot, you hit a button and it scans, you don't have to like move your hand. It's not probe dependent or technician dependent. And it kind of spits out, you know, a volumetric assessment and kind of tells you good or not good. Now, again, that, that still involves technology involves dissemination of that technology and so on. But like eventually That's where this is going to go is that we have to get better about uh, doing this. I mean, you know, you can put an EKG monitor on and and nine times out of 10, that monitor is going to tell you the right, the right diagnosis because of, because of the pattern recognition. And that's kind of what this has to come to when you got to get a screening modality, because you can't, you can't create a huge number of false referrals because then it just doesn't, it, it doesn't work from a, from a public health
0: standpoint. Got it. All right. Up next, we're going back to JPO. Um, this is a paper out of Nationwide Children's in Ohio. This paper is sponsored by a POSNA micro grant, which is great. And it is called, Do Obese Children Have Poor Patient-Reported Outcomes After CRPP of Supracondylers? So they basically compared some obese patients to non-obese patients. What do you guys think? Did they do worse, better, the same? And what's the outcome? They used several uh,
3: promise domains. Okay. And then also a quick dash score. I'm gonna guess they did the same just based on stress and use of the extremity and, and kind of function level. Yeah, I'll just stop uh, it right there. It, As usual Josh Josh has it.
1: Booyah. yeah. I was gonna say, is is any is any pediatric fracture study not just equivalent equivalent <laughs> outcomes? They all do great.
0: Um, well this is another one, so Keep pinning those obese supercondors. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, Craig, over to you. Okay. Um, so we have, I'm actually not going to read the title. Um, actually, I will read this title. Uh, it does give it away, but I'll have ask a second question. So pain for greater than four days is highly predictive of concomitant osteomyelitis in children with septic arthritis. This is from um, CHLA group published in uh, this month's JPO. Um, So, a review of 71 patients who had septic arthritis who got MRIs. They were trying to identify clinical parameters associated with the positive finding of osteomyelitis adjacent to the septic joint. There were 61 that had osteomyelitis adjacent, and 39 had just isolated septic arthritis. So, their multivariate analysis showed positive joint cultures predicted osteomyelitis, and symptoms for greater than four days prior to presentation predicted osteomyelitis. So, just to kind of demonstrate, some of the testing qualities, 23 out of the 24 patients with greater than four days of symptoms had osteomyelitis. And the rate was only uh, 20 out of 47 who had osteomyelitis if they had more acute symptoms, less than four days. So my question is, does this change your guys' practice? I feel like there's been a few studies that have kind of looked at this, you know, when is it a more, more than septic arthritis? When is it something you need to maybe do more debridement or at least uh, get an MRI to know? So change your practice, Carter?
0: Uh, no, does not change my practice. Uh, right now what I do, and not totally, uh, you know, like a solidly evidence-based thing, because I don't think we have great evidence, but if I can get an MRI without slowing down the trip to the OR, then I try to do it. But if it's, you know, going to be a big delay, then I just go straight to the OR. Because, you know, tons of these patients have osteo on the MRI. My question is how many of those need to be treated for the osteo, and I just don't think we know.
1: Dr. Sankar, any wisdom?
2: Yeah, we actually wrote a paper about this, um, I don't know, three years ago um, in response to some of the stuff out of Vanderbilt and um, out of uh, Texas Children's where – you know, both those institutions were publishing stuff with these like crazy uh, incidents of, of periarticular infections, and obviously because of their patient population, it made sense to come up with a rapid MRI protocol at both those places. And, and I think rightfully so. And so they found this you know these huge incidents of these of these uh, coexisting infections, and we just weren't really seeing that at Chop. So we wrote a paper and looked back at all our septic arthritis, try to figure out how many had common MRIs, how many had uh, coexisting infections. And we were much lower. We were like 18 to 20 percent. And I think my takeaway from that work was that infections are super, super regional. You, you know, the, the biome and microbiome in, in Vanderbilt is, is very different than in the Northeast, which is very different than California. And I think that's why you see like the, the Mincoker paper when it's redone in WashU is a little bit different it's just everything is so regional as far as what bugs you have and, and, and how they present. So I think that always all infection papers, you'd have to kind of keep that in mind. Um, and then I, I think that, you know, one of the problems with this paper is that, you know, you're relying on a couple things. Number one is you're relying on history, which is very flawed in these kids. Like how long were they having pain? If you're really going to use that as a predictor, it's really hard. I mean, patients will be able to say three days, five days, four days, you know, it's hard to actually use that in a practical aspect. And then, also say that you know this is a proxy for not being able to get an MRI or not having a kind of a fast protocol. And having trained at CHLA a while back, it's just an institution that has you know the MRIs aren't like plentiful. It's not like there's you know tons of MRI scanners lying around that you could throw everybody on super quickly. And and if you have a good system set up, like I think they have at Vanderbilt and so on, then that's that's great, uh, but a lot of institutions don't have that kind of rapid MRI setup. So you're obviously looking for other indications for, for these things. So, and that's kind of the holy grail, but yeah, those are my two comments. I, I think that infection stuff really has to be um, kind of regionalized.
3: And either Dr. Sankar listens to our podcast or we're all we're all speaking the same because on our conversation about another infection topic, I think we highlighted those two points, the regional differences and just the system you have at your hospital and and the speed of MRI and things. So that's that's good to hear that we all speak the same. It's times like this
1: where I miss our pus queen, Julia, but um, she's stuck in the OR, unfortunately. So thoughts are with her. Let me let me go to the next. So this one is incidence and significance of findings on spinal MRIs in a pediatric population. It's spinal column complaints this is from Carl Rapture and John Birch from TSRH, actually in December JCO. Um, we've talked about a few of these recently, and I just want to highlight the, the difference between this one and most of these other ones that look at everyone that's been screened and they would go look at the MRI findings is that this was done prospectively, and they uh, had apparently something where they ordered the MRI. The surgeon had to list their exact reason for doing it, so you kind of get a mind into into what they were thinking when they ordered and what their concern was. You know, was it because they were male or was it because they had a left-sided thoracic curve, et cetera? Um, the The downside is they don't select or they they had selective MRIs; they weren't MRIing everyone. So, you know, the numbers of how many people they found with certain things are a little bit higher. So my question for you guys is with that setup, you know, what factors do you think that they found that were associated with intradural anomaly? And it's not just gonna be limited to curve type. It can be, it's gonna be things like or curve severity, it can be things like, you know, what what they thought like the patient had abdominal reflexes or um, you know the curve was flipped the way that it shouldn't have been, or it was a little kyphotic,
3: et cetera. I'm gonna bow out of this one just because I, I know this study. You read it, Carter? guesses i would think curve progression would be up
0: there it didn't sound like that's where you were leading me with the clues though but that was the first thing that came to mind i'm not leading i'm not leading
1: at all <laughs> anyone else unilateral know, i'd say i'll say <laughs> flip these are be the tough tough things to guess i'll but. say
2: i'll say flip curve and um uh i'll say yeah i'll say abdominal reflex i'll i'll, I'll take your bait
1: okay um so almost I mean, no no findings for abdominal reflexes, coronal characteristics, or curve severity. Um, Patient age, um, which wasn't something that the surgeons found, but just subjectively patient age, if you are younger, more likely to have this intra anomaly. So might present with those younger patients presenting early, have something uh, problematic that's causing it. And then the surgeon indication of curve magnitude at presentation positively flagged for finding an intradural anomaly so essentially a curve that kind of gave them the willies and what truly it wasn't uh the ones that had anomalies and the ones that didn't the curve magnitude was not actually higher in those that had anomalies but when the surgeon thought that it was higher uh, that led to a positive finding interestingly back pain uh, without neuro findings was a negative predictor for finding anything on your mri of, of worth Last one is a study from JBJS from this March. It's Natural History of Benign Bone Tumors of the Extremities in Asymptomatic Children, longitudinal radiographic study. This is from uh, Chris Collier, who's now at in Indiana, um, and then Patrick Getty and Ray Liu are the senior authors from Case Westerns. So they used Bolton Brush Radiographic Collection, uh, reviewed over 25,000 radiographs for 262 subjects just to see what incidental tumors they found. So they found still only 35 tumors in 33 subjects. 19 NOFs, 8 bone islands, 6 osteochondromas, 2 n-chondromas, no UBCs, ABCs, interestingly. And the question is, uh, for me, I had to come up with a question for this. I thought it was very interesting data, but uh, which of these do you think actually resolved with age and which just kind of persisted through the last time they checked? N-chondromas, osteochondromas, NOFs,
3: bone islands. I mean, I have to think osteochondromas persist don't resolve yep. agreed i would think
0: enchondromas probably hang around too yep
1: they do uh nofs guesses resolve Probably go I would think away. resolve yeah yeah they do and it was interesting they had a bimodal distribution so a lot of them showed up around age five and then they would go away and then another group showed up closer to maturity around age 14 15 16 and uh some of those had gone away by the end of the study others um, persisted to the end of the study but um conceivably will resolve in maturity. Um, so that was kind of interesting to see. Um, I wish they had had three times as many x-rays and could give us three times as much information. Cool. Interesting study. All right. Well, uh, thank you
0: so much, Dr. Tanker for joining us. Excited to see all you guys in Dallas, and hopefully a lot of the people out there listening, too, are going to be able to make it. We'll be bringing you more episodes as we go, and hopefully in the coming weeks we'll have some uh, episodes about subspecialty day topics from the annual meeting
3: sort of leading up to the event. Wonderful. Dr. Sankar, thank you so much for spending time with us. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank so you. So yeah, you. Yeah, we great to see you, see you tonight. <laughs> shout out to Julia.